it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight we have episode 192. We're going to go back to our listener questions and read a few great ones that we got recently and do our little give and take and answer them. So I'm going to go ahead and read the first question. Uh, it's a bit long, but there's some important parts here. So just bear with me for a moment. So I have, hi, Andrew. I'm a new avid listener and a fan of your podcast because investing just seems smart and I want to know everything. I'm in my early 20s and want to start that slow growth drip style. However, this sparked a conversation between my boyfriend and I. Seeing as as the stock market is about to crash and inflation is soaring, he thinks it would be incredibly dumb to begin now because I wouldn't put in enough initially to survive the crash. With my means, I would be looking at investing between $50 to $150 a month. So my question for you is, What would happen if I had $150 worth of a stock that went to zero and below? Would it ever come back when the market slowly returns or would that money be wasted? You've always mentioned that the stock market always returns stronger and that even people who invest in bad times come out ahead due to the froth in the market. But my boyfriend said that's only if enough is invested and to not lose the stock entirely. Do you think it is wise or stupid to begin investing now in the current economical state? For slightly more detail, he said a better idea would be investing in myself right now and increasing that active income assets or otherwise just saving the money since the liquid value slash stocks won't have value in upcoming months. As a young one with a $20 an hour full-time job and an apartment, so no assets, what do you recommend? Again, thank you. Thank you. Big fan and huge respect. Mary Rose. Andrew, what do you think of her fantastic question? Yeah, there's a lot of parts of this flower to pick. So let's just kind of go step by step. I think first off, I think it's fantastic to be that age and to be looking into investing. It's a great place to start. And these are good questions to ask because as you start, it's something we're all thinking of. And so, you know, the first thing, and I came across this when I first started in the market, is the stock market's always about to crash. That's always what everybody says. And then once the stock market gets complacent, like it did in the beginning of 2020, and people stop saying it's going to crash, then it does actually crash. And so 
I'm telling you, ever since I started back in 2012, I heard it in 2014, 2015, 2017, 2019. People will constantly say the stock market's about to crash. Now, you know, we could be recording this and the day after it comes out, the market could crash. But that the point of the matter is that whether there's always going to be a fear of a stock market crash and there's nothing you can do about that. So to start, you have to move past the fear of a crash. And so in order to understand that, we need to understand what's the worst case scenario. That's where I like where the second part of the question comes in because you want to think of what happens during a crash. So maybe we break down the basics of a stock real quick. All you're doing when you're buying a stock is you are getting shares in that stock, which is part ownership. You're getting equity into a company. And so that's going to be different from other things like you know options and, and all the kind of exotic stuff you heard when it came with the whole GameStop fiasco we had a couple months ago. Or if you're talking about trying to bet against the market or using leverage, all of those things are completely different. What I'm talking about here is buying stocks. And so the worst that you can lose when you buy a stock is for it to go worthless. And for that to happen, a lot of things have to go wrong. And though it does happen, it's not very common. So for a stock to become worthless, that means a company goes bankrupt. So it does happen and you will see them often happen in groups like 2008, 2009. We saw Lehman Brothers, WorldCom, um, Washington Mutual, Bear Stearns. A a lot of these big firms will all kind of go bankrupt together, but that's not what happens over the life of the stock market. And if you look at a group of companies it's a very a f- small fraction of them that actually do go bankrupt and it's usually the really irresponsible ones. So we do need to be aware that yes, any stock we buy, there is a chance that we lose all of our money because this, the business goes bankrupt, but you can't, you can't go below that. So there's nothing that says, man, I got to put in $10,000 in order to have my stock come back from below zero a stock will never go below zero. And so the worst it can go to is zero, but that's very, very rare. And especially if you're going to be cautious, um, it's not something you generally have to worry about. So maybe I'll pause there and and you let me know um, what else we should cover about that before moving on, Dave. I think that covers that very, very well. I think the the point about it can't go below zero, I think, is something that everybody needs to kind of think about and understand that you can't lose more than you put in. When we're talking about buying or selling stocks, you can't lose more than you invest. So if you invest $100, that is the the total amount that you can possibly lose. And I, I think for me, that helps me, I guess, feel a little bit better that I can only lose what I put in. And that just makes me feel a little bit better about that. Yes. And so, you know, for, for the, for stocks to come back and for the stock market as a whole to come back, it also doesn't matter how much money you have. So if, if Mary has $50 and Dave has a thousand dollars and they're both investing in the same stock, it doesn't matter that Mary has 50 and Dave has 1,000. They're going to earn the same percentage on that. So if the stock dropped 
and then it rises in the next week by 10%, it's, it doesn't matter if you have more of that. It's, it's a percentage thing. So how much money you have doesn't matter. So that's why we try to encourage getting started as soon as you can, because it's those little pieces that you build like roads and each little brick will get you closer to your goal. And each one grows over time and it, it compounds on itself. So these little things, they grow and they become bigger and bigger and they expand like a balloon. And you, you just have to start early and there's no way getting around that. So that's kind of like the the downsides to investing is, yes, you will get stocks that crash. And what happens when stocks crash? It's because people are scared and because... People are afraid of losing their jobs. We're afraid of economic recessions. But all of that stuff eventually passes. And it, we know that it eventually passes is because it's happened over and over again. I mean, 2000, 2007, 2008, 2009, um, 1999, 2000, 2001, 1987, you know, 1960s, 1929, right? We can March go... 20, yeah. Yeah. To be a little less in the history books, pull me back. Thank you. So it happens all of the time. And and it's not that good investors know when it's going to happen or good investors know when there's a lot of inflation or good investors know when it's about to crash. That's not what it is. What it is, is you are getting, you are staking your claim in businesses and you're saying, I want to be a part of businesses. And so the fact about business, just like the fact about the weather, is that it's constantly changing. So you're going to have the spring and the fall, which are really, really great times, and maybe the coldest parts of winter aren't that great. It's the same thing with the economy. It's the same thing with the stock market. And so what you try to do when you play in the stock market and then you kind of graduate into taking it seriously is that you are trying to buy these stocks and be a part of these businesses over the very long term. And so you're looking through multiple cycles. We're not looking at next fall, next winter. We're looking at 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And over that time, good businesses continue to grow. And that's what will drive returns for you from, from the stock market. And it's not, again, it's, it's not going to matter if you put in a little or a lot. You're still going to earn the same percentage on it. What matters is if you start early even small amounts can can swell to huge amounts over over long periods of time. I really liked Andy's example. One of the examples he gave was, I think you could do a dollar a day or something. I think it was like $25 a month. And if you started doing that for 25 years and then just let it sit um, over like half a century or something, it would turn into millions something crazy. And it's just small, small pieces grow and those small pieces grow on themselves. Again, look at it like a tree, right? A small little seed turns into a couple branches, which turns into more, which turns into more, which turns into this giant thing that bears a bunch of fruit. And that's just the way that investing works. It's because of compound interest and because of things building on themselves. And so you want to start that early. You want to start it small and you have to look past what's potentially upcoming because you don't know what the future holds and it's not going to have a bearing on your long-term results anyway. No, you're exactly right. And I think one of the things that I want to encourage Mary Rose is that 
time in the market matters more than timing in the market. And for any of us to try to air quote time the market, it's almost impossible. And you think about exactly what happened in 20 March of 2020. Uh, who of us knew that that was going to happen? Probably very, very few. And the few that did were kind of lucky. And there's just no way that you can predict something like that happening. I mean, you know, you see the memes recently, you know, who had global pandemic for 2020, uh, almost nobody. And so uh, to see what happened in March of 2020 is a, a very rare event. And the way that you get through those kinds of things is by investing in really good, strong companies. And market volatility is not the same as losing everything. And there are going to be times where your companies are going to lose value. And a perfect example is Amazon. Uh, back in the 2000.com bubble bursting, the company, I believe, lost a 94% in the market. It dropped down to around $6 a share at some point in 2020, which is incomprehensible when you think about the size and the magnitude of a company like Amazon now. But at that point, it dropped a lot, but it also was it bounced back quite nicely. Uh, so I guess the point being is that it matters more about the time in the market and the companies that you're buying and buying good companies and basically not doing much. Uh, I think there's this misperception that when you invest, you have to constantly be doing things. And when you look at some of the best investors in the history of investing, a lot of them didn't do much. They would obviously spend a lot of time thinking, a lot of time learning and reading and studying, but actual buying and selling of companies, there wasn't a lot of that. And you think about some of the heroes that Andrew and I have talked about time and time again, most of their gains comes from a lot of inactivity, frankly. And when you buy a company like Coca-Cola or, you know, just about any company you can think of, anyone that does really well for a long period of time generally stays in the market and doesn't do a whole lot. And so, by that, I mean that time in the market. So consistently putting money in, if you have 50 to $150 a month, that is more than enough to start investing and finding a few really good companies and consistently adding to those positions you will find is going to create great returns over a long period of time. And you'll be shocked at how well those can do. And even when the company is not doing well, I'm going to give you a perfect example. So in March of 2020, I had bought uh, Berkshire Hathaway. And at the time I had bought it at around $220 a share. And it proceeded after March to drop it dropped to around 200 and then it fell to about 180 and I think at one point it got down to $167 a share. But I kept buying it on the way down because it was a great company and I really think that it was a great investment. Keep in mind that while the price of the, of the company is falling, nothing about the performance of the company is actually changing. So this is one of the things we have to think about in the market. Just because the price of Microsoft falls or Facebook falls doesn't mean that the 
operations and the performance of business performance of the company has really changed much. It's just the perception or what Mr. or Mrs. Market is doing in the market. They're offering us up sales for or deals on companies that are still doing great. It's just that the market has turned for whatever reason. And so now people are, as Andrew was saying, people are scared. And so they're selling out of these companies, which drives the price down. So again, going back to Berkshire Hathaway, but I kept buying it on the way down, which in turn lowered my costs for my investment. And then lo and behold, things started to turn around and the company started doing better and better. And now it's trading around $250, $260 a share. So my investment improved immensely because now I was able to buy it at a lower price. And so my cost basis, which basically means the average that I pay for it is lower than the price that it's selling for in the market, which means my return is better. And that's part of the magic of working with dollar cost averaging is that as you continue to buy something like that, it helps smooth out any sort of volatility that you may see in the price of the company. And so it's more important to consistently invest and consistently put money in the market and try to find really good companies. And it doesn't mean that they aren't going to lose value in price. They will. Uh, it, it is going to happen. I guarantee you that there is not a time where it won't happen, but it's okay. That's part of the game. And as long as you stay with it and be consistent and don't lose faith, then it will, it will bounce back and you'll see even greater returns as the stocks bounce back because that's how we win. And so I think the bottom line is all the things that Andrew was telling you are fantastic ideas. And I think just kind of stick to your guns, do what you think is right. And you think about the time in the market as opposed to timing the market. And I think you'll do really well. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. 
When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. I also think a good way to get some perspective is to just look at a chart and, and try to zoom out on these charts. So uh, whether you're on like Google Finance or Yahoo Finance, you can look and you can scroll through and look at how a stock has done in the past. And it you'll see it's not a straight line. I mean, if you really like look from month to month, instead of just looking at, oh, here's what it did over 40 years, it looks like it just went straight up. But if you actually zoom in and you look, there were a lot of bumps along the road, almost like the road of life. You know, there's there's a lot of bumps to success and it's not a straight line. And it's the same with the stock market and it's the same with the businesses underneath. And so, yeah, you just got to be long-term focused and you got to understand that there's going to be volatility. And like, like you said, Dave, I mean, as long as you're invested in good businesses that are going to be around for a long time, then over time, their values will return to where they should be, even if there's a short-term crash and things get out of whack for a little bit. So I, I also like the part investing in yourself, increasing income and assets. And I don't think it's a either or. I think it's I think it's a both, a, a question of both. And I don't think I don't think there needs to be an idea that I'm only going to invest in myself and my skills and my career, or I'm only going to invest in the stock market. I think having both of those at all times of your life is is probably the most healthy thing you can do because success in either thing won't happen overnight. And so you just you want to be doing things that that are going to help you grow over the long term. And so, you know, when it comes to money, it's in, it's it's investing as you can and letting that grow as you can put more. But but in the meantime, you just you start to build those habits, you start to let the compounding start in within your portfolio, let those returns start to come in, let those businesses start to work for you, and you, you become a better investor too and maybe you you still make some mistakes along the way, but if you start early, then you can make those mistakes and have a lot of time to recover from them too. And you can be a better investor down the road. So I guess some other thoughts to think about when um, it comes to what to do with limited funds. Amen. That's great advice. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. All right, let's move on to the next question. Hi, Andrew. I'm a 20-year-old from Canada and started investing in the stock market last June, largely thanks to guidance from your podcast. I have since then grown my portfolio to around $5,000 Canadian and have done quite well despite not having a definite plan for allocating my money between growth and value. Right now, I have some positions started in solid dividend payers like TD Bank, Coca-Cola, and Procter & Gamble, and some growth stocks like Square, Apple, and Visa. 
I am fairly tolerant to risk. And as a young investor, I am not sure whether I should be allocating more into growth companies to gain capital appreciation while I can take the risk, or if I should be starting positions and dividend payers to take a full advantage of compound interest over a long time horizon. Is buying growth companies in the short term to then increase shares of dividend payers in the long term a good strategy, or should I focus more on compounding growth companies while I can? I really appreciate the time to you take to answer this question. I have recommended your show to many of my friends who have taken an interest in investing also, and now we continue to enjoy your content. Thanks from up north, Tyson. Andrew, what are your thoughts on Tyson's great question? Yeah, good question. And you know, some good looking companies in there, Square, Apple, Visa, Procter Gamble. Definitely, you know, you can put labels to say, hey, this company's growth, this company's value. And you know, while maybe some of these might be kind of growthy type names, they're definitely not super expensive. So I wouldn't consider, you know, I wouldn't look at it at such an extreme. But this is something good to consider. So, you know, you have value companies, you have growth companies. Real quick, the concept of that is basically if you're buying value companies, you're buying companies that are a little bit cheaper. Growth companies tend to be more expensive, tend to be growing faster. That's why we call them growth companies. And so, you know, when we talk about cheap and expensive, we're not talking about on a dollar basis, but in relation to the money that they earn. So a company like Apple might be a lot bigger and earn a lot more. So depending on how much that price is in the stock market, that's what depends on how expensive or how cheap it is. It's not, it's not a, a total dollar amount. So you can totally go the way of Balancing between value and growth, I've definitely heard that. That's definitely become a more popular approach these days, and you know it's called the barbell approach. And I've heard a lot of people recommend it. And if you feel like that fits your temperament and your strategy, then definitely go ahead. Where I get concerned when it comes to growth stocks is that a lot of high flying growth stocks. You know, the, the ones that you see jump up crazy amounts and short amounts of time. So like companies like Zoom or Peloton or Airbnb, these kind of companies that are so detached from business fundamentals, so detached from the actual profits that these businesses are making, the prices are just so extraordinarily high that they fall very, very fast. And so you can lose a lot of money really quickly. And that can be very problematic. Now, the problem with picking good growth companies is, yes, you will have a lot of companies that, like Amazon, like your example, Dave, from earlier, Amazon, classic growth company lost like 80% or 95%, whatever it was in its share price in, in 2000, eventually recovered and now is one of the most expensive you know, one of the biggest market cap stocks in the market. The problem with that is that for every Amazon, there there are like three or five other growth companies that completely disappeared and just made people's money evaporate. So, you know, for every Microsoft, there was a Yahoo. For every Google, there was an IBM. For every Facebook, there was an AOL. So it, it's very tough to to figure out which companies are going to be the great successful growth companies and which ones are not. And the price that you pay, the price for being wrong is very, very high when you're playing in the growth space. And 
the price for being wrong is not as high when you're playing with value stocks, which is why it's called a margin of safety. So, you know, if I if I could try to paint a picture of of maybe how it, it kind of looks like, you don't have to, to be a golfer to to understand this. I hope, but you know, let's say hypothetically, I I sliced my driver and I ended up in the woods. Hypothetically, of course, and you know, I have 150 yards to go to to get to the green, but I have all these trees in front of me, and maybe there's like a little window where I could possibly swing my golf club, hit the ball through through like this little window pocket in the branches and score it to get on the green and have a nice easy shot after that. Or I could take the the very sensible kind of uh low risk, just chip it out, put it put it put it somewhere uh really easily just to get it out of trouble, get it out of the way and then take a normal shot from there. So I'm not a very good golfer, Dave. You know this. Uh, even on like a good day, if I'm trying to hit from like 150, 160 yards, half the time I'm not going to make a good shot, anyways. Like it's not going to get that close to the green. So my personal upside isn't that much higher from trying to take this impossible shot. But the the downside to doing that is is much greater because if there's branches all around. You're probably going to hit one if you're just slightly off and you made a slight mistake. And that's going to just completely derail you and derail your score the more you try to do it. And so when I when I try to look at balancing the risks between growth and value, I kind of look at it that way too. When I'm looking at buying companies for value, I'm not trying to pick the next Amazon or Google or Facebook. Because realistically, how many of us can can really say that we know that? It's easy for us to say that after the fact. It's, it's, it's much harder to be honest and humble and be like, you know, maybe I'm not that that appreciate you know i don't have that kind of magic magic uh ape whatever magic eight ball that tells me all the right answers all the time so what you if, if you take that kind of a mentality instead and you say i don't need these stocks i buy to be the next amazon i just need them to grow at a reasonable rate you know something that's kind of maybe close to the economy or slightly better than the economy. And if they do that, based on the price that I paid, I'm going to make nice returns, right? Whether it's 10% a year, 8% a year, whatever that is, those returns over time are going to grow and they're going to grow into my compound interest, which will roll like snow rolls down a hill and accumulates on itself. And so if you take that approach versus man, I really got to get this stock selection perfect. And the stock is priced so expensively that it needs to execute like one of the best businesses in the world. Otherwise, I'm going to lose my shirt and it's going to go down 80%, 90%. And if you're trying to do that with every stock you buy, it's going to be, you know, it's it's not an easy road. And you either need to be one of the brightest people there is, or you just need to be right or lucky all the time. And that's not something that I think most people, certainly I can't depend on doing that time and time again. And so that's why personally I go for the compounding growth, you know, just trying to buy those over the long term, letting them do the work, not trying to micromanage them or anything like that. And just buying good companies when they're priced at a good price where yeah, they could grow, you know, a decent amount, continue to do that, and I'll do really, really fine. And, you know, kind of bouncing in and out of like, 
well, I'm going to try to allocate more into growth or I'm going to try to allocate more into value. I think that's really tough. And I think if you are going to do that, you should just kind of just set it and forget it. Just buy and hold and, and try not to touch it. Because once you start getting into like the micromanaging thing, then you start talking about what that first question was about. Like, oh, what are we going to think about inflation? What about the the economic crisis that's that's going around? Well, what about what's happening in China? All these things that we just have no control over and we nobody has any idea how it's going to turn out. And so for me, I kind of like stacking the odds in my favor. And that's why I like the growth type of plays that are just going to be kind of slow and steady for me rather than super fast and exciting growth. What a really good answer. That was uh, fantastic advice. I, Tyson, I think you should definitely listen to what Andrew was saying. I think uh, the ideas that you stated in your your question, as well as the answer that Andrew gave, I think is kind of the perfect idea of how to look at your portfolio and, and what will work best for you. Well, cool. Uh, let's move on to the next one then. So this one is from Tim. He says, hi, Andrew. I had a question that I thought might be good for the podcast, but there's something I was personally curious about. I know that there are some guidelines that people suggest to have in savings, typically six months of expenses. I was curious if there is a good way to invest money like that, that is safe and easy to access in emergencies. I'm newer to investing, but having so much money just sitting in a savings account doing nothing seems like it might be a wasted opportunity. Any input you have would be more than welcome. Love the podcast. Keep them coming. So what about you, Dave? Do you invest money in a emergency account? I do. Um, I don't invest it at the moment. Uh, I actually am boring and I have mine sitting in a savings account, but I have learned something in the last few weeks uh, from you and Andy uh, that I am going to start investigating. So one of the things that uh, Andrew is going to talk more about, but I thought maybe I could give a little like 101 on this is something that's called commercial paper. So this is something that most investors are probably not super familiar with. So what commercial paper is, is think of it as it's debt. It's like a bond. And if you're not familiar with what bonds are, bonds are in essence debt. And what it is, is we are buying debt from a company, we're basically loaning them money to, let's say, Apple. We're loaning Apple money, and they're going to pay us interest on that money that we loaned us. And then at the end of however long we've agreed to loan them the money, they're going to give it back to us in addition to the interest or the dividends, however you want to phrase that or think of it, that extra money for the right for them to use our money. So in most cases, bonds are generally used for, I think of bigger purchases. So think of buying another company or doing large expansions of the business. Let's say you want to build a factory or something along those lines. Instead of going to a bank and borrowing money, you may go this route and issue bonds for investors to buy to give them, you know, to give us their money and then they can use that to go build their factory, that kind of thing. So what commercial paper is, is it's along the same idea of a bond and it is technically a bond, but it's much, much shorter. Generally, I think they're probably less than six months, probably. And so it'll range a little bit, but commercial paper is in essence, it's short term money that a company will use 
to cover different uh, expenditures that the company may have. A perfect example is, let's say the target has their payroll coming due and they don't maybe have quite enough cash to cover the payroll because of whatever reasons. Because cash flow going in and out of the business is kind of like our checking accounts. Sometimes we have all the money to pay the rent and sometimes maybe we don't. So commercial paper can help fill those gaps. And I'm not saying the target has issues with that. I'm just using them as an example that we can understand. So that money may cover the payroll. It may cover buying inventory. It may cover paying off some debts that we have. Maybe we have to pay our vendors for things. So think of it as, I guess, an extension of credit is maybe an easy way to think of it. So as somebody who worked in the restaurant business, this is, I think, an easy way to kind of explain this to people. When you are running a a business, you buy products from vendors that you turn around and sell to your customers. And in some cases, it's something that's already produced. In other cases, it's something that maybe you're buying the raw materials and you produce it and sell it to your customer. So in, in the case of a restaurant, two things that immediately spring to mind are food and alcohol. So for example, food vendors depending on the size of the restaurant, will give you maybe 15 days to pay them. So in other words, I buy my food today on a Thursday, and then I pay them back two weeks from Thursday. And so they give me credit to pay them. So it helps my cash flow so that I can kind of flow with it. Now, it doesn't mean you have to wait two weeks to pay them. If I have the money to pay them on delivery, I can certainly do that. But it gives you the flexibility to work with the cash flow that you have for your business. Now, alcohol is longer. It's it's 30 days. So I have a longer period of time to pay back my liquor vendor or my beer vendor or my wine vendor. So that's how that works. Now, depending on the size of the business, you may have better choices for that credit. So for example, you know, a small restaurant like the one that I was working at, we didn't have as much buying power as somebody like uh, Darden. So the Olive Gardens, for example, the Red Lobsters of the world, those have large (laughs) budgets and they also have a lot more buying power because it's a much bigger company. So they could get extensions on their terms from buying from people. And the same thing applies with a company like a a Walmart or Costco. They are in essence using the credit from these companies to finance their purchases. So Walmart, for example, can go to a vendor and say, I'm going to buy all my tires from you, but you got to give me 90 days to pay you. And if the company goes, well, I don't have the cash flow to pay for that, then they say they may say no, but if they say yes, then Walmart buys the tires from the tire company and they pay them 90 days later. Now, if the tire company is maybe doesn't have the cash flow that they need to cover their expenses, they may use something like commercial paper that will allow them to borrow some money to pay for those expenses. And then when Walmart pays them back, they pay off the commercial paper. And so long story short, commercial paper is kind of a, a, a easy way for a corporation or a company to kind of float expenses to help them get through a cash flow period. Now you can use these things as, as investments on our side to put your money in because they're very, very safe. They don't default. They're very easy, not easy to buy, but they're very 
safe and secure and they do pay interest and I think they pay better interest than savings accounts do. And I'm going to turn it over to Andrew now so he can tell us more about this exciting idea. Yeah. So they have ETFs where you can buy, basically these ETFs will hold a huge collection of commercial paper. And so that takes away a lot of the risk of if any of these companies go insolvent, well, guess what? There's, you know, I don't have the whole holdings list, but, you know, 50 plus companies, um, who make up, you know, that are, that are giving, that are, um, issuing this commercial paper that the CTF is holding. So there's two options. There's one that's ticker N-E-A-R, so near. Um, that's from BlackRock. There's another one called ticker I-C-S-H, also BlackRock. And so they have different maturities, but like let's let's take this ICSH one. 18% of their fund is maturity one to seven days. Most of it's within like one year time. Actually, this whole fund is is within a year. So there's different time periods. There's the you know, within a week, there's 30 to 60 days, 69 days, whatever it is. So it's very, very short term. And why that's important is because bond prices fluctuate. And and I'll tell you why this can be frustrating because we're talking about an emergency fund. And so you want something that is liquid. So if you do have that emergency, you can get out. And not only that, if 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 you do get out that you're not locking in losses. So a good example of this was I put some money and I was like, well, you know, I, I, I'm not making any interest on my emergency fund. I want to try to do that. So I looked at what are some like some bond ETFs I could get into. So I got into a short term US Treasury. So it's basically just like Dave was saying with the bonds, but we're talking about the government. So very, very safe because it's a very low chance the government defaults, right? And so I'm thinking, okay, there's no way you can lose money on this. But even if it's a short term bond, um, even within like one year, two years, three years, as interest rates move, that moves the price of the government bonds. So I'm not going to get into why. Just know that that you could do what I did, where you put emergency fund money into what's supposed to be a very safe bond fund ETF, and yes, you'll make those little dividend payment, the dividends that you're receiving in your account every month, but. <laughs> You look at the brokerage account and it's showing you as negative because interest rates are rising. And so your your the value of that bond ETF is falling. And now I'm still losing money on something that was supposed to be very, very safe. Where the commercial paper comes in is because it is so short term, it is not nearly affected as much as a like an ETF like I had with with the US government. Um, you know, we're just looking at the U.S. government, so there's one price for the U.S. government bond. These commercial paper things, they're they're they mature so frequently, and the way they've structured these is, like I said, there's so many different mixes of maturities. So I'll give you an example of some of the companies for one of these. So this was um, one of them from BlackRock, right? They've got Bank of America, AbbVie, General Motors, Morgan Stanley, Volkswagen, Goldman Sachs. Citigroup. These are all companies that they hold the commercial paper for, and the companies are just going to pay this in interest as long as they're alive. So what's cool about having all these different companies in there, they're all at different maturities. So some of them might 
have a, a commercial paper that's due in seven days. Some might be in 30 days, 45 days. And so as that kind of all trickles in, the interest rate really isn't moving as much. And so if the interest rates are moving, like we have seen lately, well, you know, if it's like Bank of America, they just paid off their, their let's say, 10-day commercial paper, they're going to need more commercial paper, right, just to run their business. So they'll go in and they'll do they'll issue another thing of commercial paper, but it's going to be it's going to be reflected at the higher interest rate. So you see like the money was never really tied up that much. So if interest rates rise, the companies have to pay that difference in the interest rate instead of us the investors. So going back to like a government bond ETF that that money is not it's not it's not swishing around, it's not getting recycled. It's just sitting there as a as a government bond. So that price moves. But in commercial paper ETFs, all of it's all flushing around. It's all being recycled over and over and over again. So if interest rates go higher, you're actually going to make higher dividends because as these companies need more commercial paper and as they recycle through it, they're going to pay higher interest rates. And so what you see if you look at the long-term prices of these ETFs is they'll stay around their net asset value, which for these two ETFs is around $50. And it's not their prices won't move, so you won't lose money. And it's just the amount of money that you'll receive from dividends will change as interest rates change. But the actual fund itself and, and the price of it, you know, other than like a, a, there's like a short dip when when the market kind of gets out of whack. But as long as you believe that companies will need commercial paper, and as long as these commercial paper ETFs aren't you know, super, super concentrated in all the most riskiest commercial paper companies or companies issuing commercial paper, then, then it's, it should go back to, to $50. So this is for an emergency fund for something that is basically zero volatility and you're getting at least a little bit more interest than a savings account. Um, this is probably going to be your best bet. And that's what I'm going to do with my emergency fund moving forward because I did the short-term government bond thing and I didn't like that and I don't like I don't like seeing emergency fund money going negative even if it's not going negative as much as like a stock would it's still frustrating to see that. And so I don't think it's a good idea to do anything more than like very very ultra short term which is what commercial paper is. Yeah, that's that's great insight. So a question for you then about these kinds of ETFs how uh, how how quickly can you turn around and liquidate? Let's say that you have an expense come up, like you know, God forbid, the brakes on your car go out, and you need to tap into your emergency fund for that. How quickly can you get the money out? I mean, as soon as the market's open, and then okay. ov- I mean, obviously, you have to transfer it from your brokerage to your checking account. So, however long that takes, maybe a couple days. Okay. So you know maybe 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 you have an emergency fund and then a bigger emergency fund so this would be for the bigger emergency fund. Okay. All right. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, that's uh that that sounds fantastic. I'm definitely going to be I know what I'm going to be doing tonight after we get done with the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, have fun. Good luck. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> doing a little research. <laughs> little deep dive into commercial paper. <laughs> 
All right, folks. Well, with that, we are going to wrap up our conversation for this evening. I wanted to thank everybody for taking the time to write us those great questions. Keep them coming. These are fantastic. You guys are sending us some really thoughtful, great stuff. So I really appreciate it. And with that, I will go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety. Emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. We'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.